Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here with you all. If you are standing in the back, feel free to make your way up. There are some seats uh, as you come further in. Don't be shy. Come on in. Uh, my name is Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek Church, and uh, it's great to be together with you all this morning. If you're newer here, I want to say welcome. It's good to have you worshiping Christ alongside us today, and today is a special morning for us. Uh, normally, we have a couple of services at 9 and 1030, and we'll be back on that uh, next Sunday. But this morning, we are excited to have everybody here together, and it's good to be here uh, together to, to worship, to pray, to sing, to be in God's Word as one big body of Christ. You know, Acts chapter 2 describes the scene of the early church. And it says this in Acts 2. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property. They distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day... The Lord added to them those who were being saved. There is an incredible, powerful, unique work of God that takes place as His people gather and worship together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, You are the body of Christ and individual members of it. We are individuals. We are Individually, though, members of the body of Christ. And God is at work when we gather. Now, as we gather, what is it that we're doing? What, what are we doing here today? And not just today, but really every Sunday morning that we come together as a body of believers. What is our aim or our purpose? Well, God, he has four purposes for us as we gather together. Number one, we seek to enjoy God. What are we doing when we get together on Sunday mornings? And first and foremost, we're here to enjoy God, to receive from God. God's people, when we come together, we're at the mountain of God, not first to do something for God or to bring something to God, but just to receive from the Lord. Do you realize that? Going to church, this is not first and foremost something that you do for God. Coming to church is a worshipful experience where we receive. We are God's people receiving from him. You know, no one should have to drag us to church. It is to be a joyful, worshipful time together in God's presence, receiving from him, enjoying him. Second, we seek to exalt God. When we come together, we're lifting up God's name to his glory. That he would be exalted and lifted high. We sing to God because he's worthy. We preach his word because he is worthy. Third, we seek to edify one another. When we're here together, we seek to build one another up. To encourage each other. When we sing to God, we don't just sing to the Lord. We also sing to one another. Colossians 3. When we pray, we don't just pray to God. We pray for one another. James 5. In the word, we sharpen each other. In communion, we affirm one another as members of the body of Christ. We're here to build each other up. And fourth, we seek to evangelize the lost. When we come together on Sunday mornings, I know that there are some that are still wrestling and trying to figure out, is this true? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Some of you young people who are with us today, you're still trying to figure out your lives and, and what you're going to give your life to. You're trying to figure out, is, is this Jesus that my mom and dad follow? Is he really worth it? Am I going to follow him too? Some of you adults are still trying to figure out, is this true? Is this really worth giving my life to? And when we come together, part of what we want to do is to be a blessing in humility, to be a blessing for those of you who are wrestling and trying to figure this out. In humility, we share the word of God and the truth of God. In humility, we sing praises to God that we might point you accurately to Christ. And we do all of it for the glory of God. 
and we do it together. See, we uniquely, when we come together, we uniquely enjoy, exalt, edify, and evangelize in ways that you couldn't possibly recreate on your own. There is something special about God's people being together, and that's what we're doing here today. And today is special for us, not just because we get to do all of it together as one big body, but it is also special because today we are pivoting. We have a turning point, okay, where we're pausing from our normal study of the book of Genesis, and we're beginning to fix our eyes very specifically on the death and resurrection of Jesus, looking ahead to Easter, which will be here before we even know it, okay? And this year, we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Christ through the gospel of Luke. And today, we'll pick up in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 23. And I want us to start our time together this morning in the word of God with one another. We're going to read through our passage from Luke chapter 23. And we're going to be jumping into Luke 23 in the middle of a scene, and that's okay. We'll get some of the context as we study our text together. But I want us to first just begin our time together this morning in the Word of God with one another. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to get it out, get it open to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to start just by hearing the Word of God with one another. Luke 23, you can follow along with me if you've got your Bibles. It says this. Then their whole assembly rose up and they brought him, meaning Jesus, before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said it. Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he started, even to here. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions. But Jesus didn't answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been hostile towards each other. That is our passage, which we will study together today. But before we do that, we're going to spend a couple of minutes in prayer. And I'm going to invite you in just a second here to turn to a neighbor, to put your heads together, and to pray with one another and pray for one another. And the reason we do that is because we believe in the power of prayer. We're not afraid to call out to God in prayer, and we like to open our time in the Word together each week by praying for one another, okay? So I'm going to invite you just to take two minutes here, put your heads together with somebody nearby. It shouldn't be hard today. And go ahead and pray for one another. We can pray that we would be awake, that we would be alert to God in His presence. We can pray that we would be humble and teachable, prepared to hear from God in His Word today. And we can just pray that we would be moved by the death of Christ uniquely today, in a special way today. That the death of Christ really grip our hearts in worship to God. Okay, so let's pray for each other for a couple of minutes here. Then I'll jump in and pray with all of us, and we'll be on our way in the car. So on your marks, get set, pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we call out to you today as people who are in desperate need of your spirit. People who are in desperate need of your grace. God, I pray that you would capture our hearts this morning, God. That we would be full of worship, God, as we see you in, in powerful control in circumstances God, that appear on the surface to be so different than what they are in reality. God, we, we want to see more clearly today, God, just how you are at work to deliver our salvation through the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that our hearts would rejoice in the mercy and the love that you have for us today, God. God, though we are sinners, yet you are at work to deliver us from our slavery to sin and from the consequence, the punishment of our sin, God. I pray that we would see it, God. I pray that we would rejoice and that we would trust you and follow you and obey you as we worship you, God. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to start this morning with a brief poll question. So a little audience participation required here. How many of you are fans of the TV show The Bachelor? Now, I know most of you knew where I was going with that, but how many of you are fans of the TV show The Bachelor? Don't be bashful. Maybe casual fans, maybe diehard fans. How many of you are fans of the TV show The Bachelor? Okay, none of you. How about a cooking show? cooking show how about just any old competition maybe even a sport any sport any fan of any competition there we go okay i was hoping to maybe catch a few people with the bachelor i thought we could have the ushers just come forward and (laughs) remove them from the building uh you all passed the test way to go but there's something about us that's just hardwired to enjoy a good competition now, when I was growing up, there was about a two or three year period of my life where, for me, that competition that I enjoyed was professional wrestling. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about Hawkeye's wrestling. I mean like WWE, like Andre the Giant, Nature Boy Ric Flair, Scotty Too Hotty. you know. I was all in on professional wrestling. I loved it. One time, my dad took me to Fargo, North Dakota to go see Thursday Night Smackdown. It was great. If you've never been there before... Maybe don't go. But there was something that caused me to basically lose all interest in professional wrestling when I was about 12 years old. I learned that it was fixed. It was all just a hoax. It was an elaborate ruse that all of the wrestlers were in on. You know, it, it should have been an honest competition. On the surface, it even appeared to be real. But then I learned that it was fixed. All these matches that I was like so passionately cheering about, they were fixed from the start. Now, sorry if I just ruined professional wrestling for somebody over here. But I remember when I found out that it was a sham, I was so disheartened and discouraged. Because when something is supposed to be an honest test or an honest trial or an honest competition, but instead it's fixed, it goes against our every impulse and our thirst for justice. And in our passage today, what we have on our hands is a trial that was completely and utterly fixed from the very beginning. It should have been an honest trial. On the surface, it even appears to be an honest trial. But in reality, it was nothing more than a hoax, an elaborate ruse that the players were in on. And yet even through that, we're going to see that God himself was at work through this trial to deliver our salvation through Christ. The big idea of our text today is this. Even through the fake trial of Jesus, God is working to deliver real salvation for very real sinners. Even through the fake trial of Jesus, yes, what we see in Luke 23 is a sham. But God is at work to deliver real salvation to very real sinners in need. And since it plays out like a courtroom drama, we're going to travel through our passage today in the sequence or the series of scenes that it unfolds to us through. And this passage comes to us in three key scenes. Scene one, the opening scene, is the real trial. There is a real trial, but it comes to us beforehand. 
It is before the Sanhedrin in Luke chapter 22, which we studied together last summer. Scene two is the fake trial, the mock trial of Jesus. And that's the scene that's at the heart of much of our text here in Luke 23. And then finally, scene three is the very real sentence. This is a fake trial. It is a mock trial in Luke 23. But there is a very real sentence handed down from it. The real trial, the fake trial, and the very real sentence. And I want us to begin this morning by taking a step back to the real trial that takes place of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Okay, So keep in mind, Jesus, at this point in his life, Jesus has been in public ministry for the last three years. Very public ministry, preaching and teaching throughout the region of Galilee, up in northern Israel. And Jesus was extremely polarizing in his ministry. Jesus was a lightning rod. He was a very divisive figure in his ministry. There were those that loved Jesus and there were those that hated Jesus. And Jesus was very polarizing for three main reasons. Okay, number one is because he defied the religious rules of the day. Jesus, he was famous for defying the religious rules of the day. And I'm not talking about like doing drugs or stealing from the offering plate. Those aren't the rules that Jesus was breaking. What Jesus did, though, is that he healed people on the Sabbath. His disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. He did miracles specifically on the Sabbath. And it was like a big poke in the eye for all of the religious leaders of his day. It was highly inflammatory. Second, Jesus, he hammered the religious leaders. He went after religious leaders. He defied their rules. And then he preached against the religious leaders. He was a defender of the downcast and the downtrodden. But he annihilated religious leaders and he often called them hypocrites. Your life does not match what you teach. As a religious leader, I find this to be very convicting. But again, this was highly inflammatory. Many people loved him for this because he spoke what was true. But the religious elites hated him for it. And lastly, Jesus, he was very polarizing because he was someone who talked like the Messiah, but he refused to go after Rome. And you see, Rome, they ruled over the Jews at this time. They oppressed the Jews. And the Jews, this was a big deal because the Jews, they anticipated that their Messiah was coming to deliver them out of that oppression, to overthrow the Romans. But Jesus, see, he refused to go after Rome. The Jews, their Messiah was not coming to die. Their Messiah was coming to kick butt and to throw the Romans off of their backs. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't even try to do that. He spent all of his time and effort and energy going after the Jews, the religious leaders. And he refused to go after Rome. And so again, he was highly polarizing and divisive. And his popularity, it swelled among average Joes. But the religious leaders of the day increasingly saw Jesus as a threat to their power and influence. Someone who is stealing the hearts of people. They saw him as a danger, leading people astray in their eyes. And they saw him as a disappointment. Someone who was not even going to deliver them from Rome. And the pressure to take down Jesus at this point in his ministry, three years in, it is rising. The temperature around Jesus is rising. And it's reaching a boiling point at a time of the year called Passover. A festival in Jerusalem called the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, write it down, look it up. It's an incredibly fascinating festival. But there would have been hundreds of thousands of people jammed into the city of Jerusalem at this point in time for the Passover festival. And the city is absolutely on edge because of Jesus. Jesus has this city on edge. He's like a lightning rod. Many people love him, but the religious leaders, they are despising him, hating him, and fearing him. And on the night of the Passover dinner, Jesus, he shares one final meal with his disciples, his closest friends in the world, who he has been traveling with day after day for the last three years, in close ministry, in deep friendship. And he shares one last intimate meal with his friends. And after that meal, one of his best friends in the world, 
one of his closest companions, one of his 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot. He betrays Jesus to the very religious leaders who hated him. And Judas betrays him with a kiss in the middle of the night, armed with an angry mob at his side. And Jesus is arrested and he's dragged before the high priest in the middle of the night. And just as the sun is starting to peek up over the hills, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. The Sanhedrin were a group of men in Israel who would have been the highest authority at the time. They were like the Supreme Court in Israel. The highest authority, a religious council of leaders in Israel. And the first trial of Jesus, the real trial of Jesus, it plays out like this in Luke chapter 22. If you want to follow along, you can, starting in verse 66. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, they convened and they brought him before their Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the land. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And that's it. That is the real trial of Jesus. That's all he gets. That is the trial through which Jesus is condemned to die. And when that guilty verdict is handed down by the Sanhedrin in verse 71, regardless of how everything else plays out in Luke 23, Jesus is already dead. Jesus is already condemned to die. It is set, it is over, it is fixed. And I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, the real charge against Jesus is blasphemy. The primary issue that the religious leaders had with Jesus is over who he claimed to be. They recognized Jesus. He, he was a man who was lifting himself up as God and as equal to God. See, in verse 69, when Jesus, he says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. To us, that reads like coded language. What does that mean? But to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the elders, and to the Sanhedrin, they knew right away exactly what he was saying. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying you are the Son of God? And Jesus refuses to deny it. And they say, we have heard enough. We have heard it from his own mouth. He is a blasphemer. He has made himself equal to God. He is lifting himself up as God. The real charge against Jesus that gets him killed is blasphemy. But second, notice that even through this real, this is a real trial. But it is not above board. This trial is not without serious concerns and flaws. This is the real trial that gets Jesus condemned. But there is so much wrong with this trial. See, Jesus, he's arrested in the middle of the night. And by the time the sun is barely peeking up over the hills in Jerusalem, he is already standing trial before the Supreme Court of the land with his life on the line. No defense lawyer. And a verdict is rendered almost immediately. And Jesus is condemned to die. See, this isn't a fair trial. If, if this is how you try people, you better believe you're going to be putting a lot of people to death, right? But this is the only trial that Jesus gets. This is the only real trial that Jesus gets. And once this verdict is rendered with absolute certainty, Jesus is a man who is headed towards death. There's no turning back from here. And it's all fixed from here on out. Okay, But they don't kill Jesus right away. They don't pick up stones and kill him. 
Even though the guilty verdict has been rendered, even though he is man condemned to die, instead what they do is they move him to a trial before the Romans. They don't even imprison him. They drag him before the very Romans who they hate, who they despise, who they want nothing to do with, who who they were pleading for a Messiah to come and set them free from. But they drag this man who they have already condemned to die before the Romans to stand trial before them. And before we get into Luke 23 this morning, the question we need to stop and consider is this. Why? Why in the world do the Jews who have already convicted Jesus of blasphemy and condemned him to die, why in the world do they bring him before the Romans to stand trial before Rome? Well, we're not going to answer that just yet. And let me just tell you, the answer is not what you think it is. But let's keep that question in our minds. And I want us to turn to our passage in Luke 23. The mock trial of Jesus, the fake trial of Jesus before the Romans. It says this in our text. Then their whole assembly rose up. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, the elders, all those who had dragged Jesus In the first place, they get up and they bring him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You have said it. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he started, even to here. And when Pilate heard this, he asked, Is the man a Galilean? Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days, during the Passover. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see Jesus, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions. But Jesus didn't answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been hostile to each other. Now, real quickly, we need to orient ourselves to what's going on here. There's a couple of characters that we need to be introduced to. First is Pilate. Who is Pilate? Who is this man, Pilate, that Jesus comes before first? Well, Pontius Pilate was a prefect or a governor over the region of Judea, which included Jerusalem down in southern Israel. And so they are in Pilate's jurisdiction when Jesus is arrested. They're in Jerusalem in southern Israel. But remember, Jesus is not from Jerusalem. He's not from Judea. He is a Galilean up in northern Israel. And Herod, which is Herod Antipas, he was a Roman tetrarch over northern Israel, over the region of Galilee. Which is why when Pilate finds out Jesus is actually a Galilean, he sends him to see Herod Antipas, who happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover as well. But I want us to walk through this trial with Pilate and Herod in the order in which it comes to us. Okay, and we need to remember here that Jesus... He has already been convicted, condemned to die before the Sanhedrin. But notice where this trial before Rome begins. It is with fake charges. The charges have changed. The charges now are different when Jesus arrives to stand trial before Pilate and eventually Herod. The fake trial begins with three fake charges. And we find them in verse 2. They say to Pilate, we found this man misleading or subverting our nation. Second, we found this man opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. And third, we found him saying that he is the Messiah, a king. And you see, all these fake charges, they're designed in order to, to rile up Pilate, to care about this case that's in front of him and this man, Jesus. You see, Pilate, he's not exactly disposed to care about blasphemy. He doesn't mind if someone is speaking against the God of the Jews. 
And so they stir, they designed these charges against Jesus to, to stir up Pilate, to care about the case that's in front of him. They say he is trying to subvert or mislead our nation. Now, which nation are they talking about? Are they talking about Israel or Rome? Well, they don't really say. And I think they're being intentionally vague here that Pilate might actually care about it. And then they say he, he is teaching that we should oppose the payment of taxes to Caesar, which is ridiculous because Jesus actually taught the opposite. He said, pay to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. They had tried to trap him in this teaching. And Jesus refused to preach against Rome. And then they say he's trying to stand himself up as a king. They say he's trying to rise up as a threat to Rome, Pilate, so you should care. Which again is ridiculous because this is the opposite of what Jesus is doing. This is why he was so polarizing in the first place. The religious leaders couldn't stand the fact that he wouldn't prop himself up as a rival to Rome. And Pilate, he picks up on the fact that these charges are bogus. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, will you say so? Pilate tells the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. Your charges are bogus. Pilate very quickly dismisses the fake charges. He reads through the Jews. And the fake charges are dismissed. Okay, but remember, the verdict has already been set here. The fake trial can't just end right here because the verdict has already been set. And so Pilate, he realizes that Jesus, he's actually a Galilean. Like the Jews will not let this go, but he realizes Jesus is a Galilean. And so as any good leader does, he sees his way out of the responsibility and he says, why don't you send him over to Herod? Because Herod happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover as well. And Jesus just so happened to be within his jurisdiction as a Galilean. And so the fake trial changes venue and shifts from Pilate to Herod. And Herod was actually excited to have Jesus in front of him. It says in verse 8 that Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping that he would do some miracle performed by Jesus. It was like a circus. And and, and there aren't even specific charges that are being brought before Herod. Herod just wants to see him perform. But Jesus isn't here for that. Jesus is not our puppet. And Herod, he's a very powerful man. He's used to people just going along with what he wants. And when Jesus refuses to play along, Herod and his men, they mock Jesus. They despise him. They treat him with contempt. They mock him. They dress him in bright bright clothing. I want you to realize here, this is not the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ. This is the wrath of man who God himself humbly and quietly endures. And then they send him back to Pilate. The fake trial moves back to Pilate. And it's at this point where this fake trial shifts. And there is a very real sentence that is about to be handed down. But before we get to the sentencing of Jesus, I want us to circle back to our question of why. Why in the world did the Jews, who have already reached their verdict, Jesus is guilty, he must die. Why in the world do they bring him before Pilate and Herod to stand trial before the Romans? The verdict is already rendered if he's already condemned to die, if the Jews despise the Romans. Why do they put on this ruse of a trial with the Romans. 
And here's the common answer. The common answer is that the Jews needed Rome to kill him, to kill Jesus, because they didn't have authority to execute him. The common answer is that the Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus because they did not have the authority to execute criminals. You heard that before? You want to know something? That's close, but it's wrong. See, whether they had authority or not, the Jews had no qualms about executing criminals or those that they considered worthy of death. You remember Stephen, the martyr in Acts chapter 7? Rome didn't put him to death. The Jews did. The Sanhedrin. They stoned him to death. They dragged him outside of the city. And then they stoned him. They had no issue executing those who they saw as fit for death. Do you know why the Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus? The Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus because they needed Jesus to save them from their sins. They just didn't know it yet. The Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus because they needed Jesus to save them from their sin. The Jews stoned people, but God's Son must be crucified. God's wrath could only be poured out upon His Son on the cross. The Jews stoned people but God's son needed to be crucified. That is why the Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus. They just didn't know it. That is why you needed Rome to kill Jesus. Because we needed a savior, not a martyr. You see, in the fake trial of Jesus, it is God himself who is in control. It is God himself who is the author of our salvation through Christ on a cross. In John 18, look at what John tells us about the fake trial of Jesus. You see, Pilate, he's fed up with this trial of Jesus. He, he is fed up with these fake charges. And after they've gone back and forth, he's like, this man, he is not guilty of anything. Send him away. And he says to the Jews in John 18, 31, you take him and judge him according to your law. You want him dead? Go kill him according to your laws. And the Jews say, though, but it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. And see, that statement, it might be accurate, but it meant nothing to them. They had no problem putting people to death. They had previously picked up stones in order to kill Jesus. But he slipped through the crowds. The issue is not a lack of authority to kill Jesus. The problem was that Jews did not crucify people. They stoned them. And God is in control here. And God's son must receive the wrath of God on a criminal's cross. Hung from the tree. Look at verse 32. It says, they said this, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. You see all of this, the fake trial, the crucifixion at the hands of Rome. It is fulfilling the will of who? The Jews? No. Jesus. God is in control. And the Jews needed Rome to kill Jesus because they needed Jesus to save them from their sin. And the only one, only the one who is killed on the criminal's cross can receive the Father's wrath, can become a curse in our place and give us new life in the Spirit by faith in Him. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were all enslaved under the law, hopelessly enslaved to our sin. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, it has been written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus' death on the cross, it's not just one of many ways that the Son of God could have been put to death. It is the only way that Jesus, the Son of God, could receive the wrath of God. 
Only by becoming a curse for us can Jesus redeem us from our curse under the law. Jesus had to be crucified. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us he himself bore our sickness. And he did it on the cross. He carried our pains. But when we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. See, his hands and feet pierced upon the cross. That was for our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished us. No. The Lord, God himself, has punished him for the iniquity of us all. What a gift. If you are a human being, you have sinned. And as someone who has sinned, you stand guilty before a holy God. And yet through the cross, when Jesus' hands and feet were pierced, they were pierced for us. The punishment that our sin had earned was set upon the shoulders of Christ on the cross. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. You see the whole trial of Jesus before Pilate and Herod? It's a sham. It was fixed. And yet in all of it, even through the fake trial of Jesus, God himself is in control, delivering very real salvation to very real sinners in desperate need of a savior, not a martyr. By putting his son on a cross, God has paid the debt for our sin. Christ has become our Passover lamb. His shed blood in place of our blood. And that is exactly the very real sentence that Pilate is about to hand down to Jesus. And if you want to see it unfold, well, you've got to come back next week. But for this morning, I don't want us to wrap up with any practical application. You see, there will be time for practical application. There is always time for practical application. But today I want us to close together in worship. In simple, humble, reverent worship of Christ. I'm convinced we have plenty of application. We know what to do in our lives. That is not my problem. My problem is that I worship Jesus too little. And we're going to close today with worship in three ways. And I want to encourage you, worship wholeheartedly. In real, reverent, humble worship. And we're going to worship Christ as we spend these last few minutes together this morning through communion. We will worship as we celebrate a few baptisms together. And then we will worship with our voices, singing to God and to one another. And I want to encourage you, don't hold back as we sing. Sing as though the Lord is in our midst, because he is. But first we'll worship through communion. If you are a believer, this time of communion, it is for you. It is for us to affirm one another in Christ, to affirm each other as members of the body of Christ by the blood and the body of Jesus. See, the body of Jesus, it was crushed and broken and given for us. The blood of Christ, it was shed that he might be our Passover lamb. And in the physical elements of communion, we are reminded and we proclaim the death of Christ for our salvation. The elements are under the seat in front of you. If you want, you can go ahead and grab those elements right now. And again, if you're a believer, communion, it is for you. It is to remind us that we are all sinners in need of the Savior who died on the cross to set us free. If you are in Christ, you are free. 
from the curse of the law. Because of the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. You are free because Jesus became a curse. So that he could redeem us from our curse under the law. Remember what Paul tells us in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And we remember that and we proclaim that through the elements and in this time of fellowship together. If you are not yet a believer, if you are not yet a believer, this time of communion, it is not yet for you. It's a time for you to contemplate the work of Christ on the cross. And our prayer is that one day you would join us in affirming one another through communion. One day, my prayer is that every single one of us in this room would be able to affirm each other through the elements of communion. But if you're not a believer yet, then this time is not yet for you. But as believers... We're going to take a few minutes here in communion. I'm going to pray for our time. And then I would encourage you, take some time, either by yourself or with a neighbor, and just worship Christ for his work accomplished on the cross for our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are in control of all things, God. God, I thank you. He sent Jesus not just to receive your wrath, God, but even to receive the wrath of men who reviled him, who despised him, who mocked and humiliated him, God. God, I thank you that he was willing to endure the reviling of men, which isn't what accomplished our salvation. So that He could endure the cross, which does accomplish our salvation. Thank you that he was willing. God, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame, Lord. And we stand as people who are free from the penalty of sin and free from the chains of sin through the body and blood of Jesus. I pray this morning we would worship you wholeheartedly singing to you with hearts full of gladness, God, in Christ. And we pray it all in the sweet, holy, and precious name of Jesus. Amen.
All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with all of you. Um, as Tim mentioned, we do have a few uh, baptisms to witness this morning, in case you haven't noticed our baptistry right here on stage. You know, much could be said about baptism. Um, here is a one way to look at it. Here's a sentence that I think captures kind of the essence of baptism. I'll go ahead and read. I think it's on the on the screen as well. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant externally uniting us by faith into the redeemed church of God. Baptism also signifies our adoption and new life in Christ and our cleansing from sin. You know, baptism is a public identity marker, and it's really a picture of the grace of God. We look back and see how God has saved someone by his grace, and, and by his grace we will continue to follow him for the rest of our lives, that, that Christ is... Um, our Savior, and we are endeavoring to please him with every day that he gives us going forward. At Walnut Creek, we typically have baptisms the last weekend of the month, and if you are a, a Christian but have not been baptized, we would encourage you to, to join Christ's command and be baptized. If you have any questions about baptism, feel free to talk to one of the pastors. We'd be happy to help as, as much as we can. So we do have three baptisms uh, this morning, uh, Peter, Bree, and Zach. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read like a kind of a condensed version of their testimonies, and then we'll do the baptisms, and I'm sure each of the three would be happy to, to talk to you more and share with you more about the grace of God in their lives. So I think I'm going to do Peter's first here. Okay, so um, my name is Peter Lin. I am from a city in southern China called Guangzhou. In 2015, I came to the U.S. to study at the University of Illinois. After completing my degree at the University of Illinois, I moved to Des Moines to start my career. A friend from work invited me to come to a weekend service here at Walnut Creek. While at Walnut Creek, I met a lot of great people. I started reading and studying the Bible with them. I was born in a non-religious family back home, and I've had so many questions about God and the Bible. My friends here have been so very patient with me to answer my questions and to share with me how God has changed their lives, and I'm very grateful for them. Last year, after studying and thinking a lot, I realized that regardless of how hard I try to be good, my sinful nature cannot be overcome on my own. I've also realized that there is a God who knows everything, and he loves me in spite of all my problems and my issues. Additionally, I have come to understand that God is willing to save me through his son, Jesus Christ, and I can find peace and love and hope in Christ. A few months ago, I decided to become a Christian and to follow Jesus with my life, and today I want to be baptized to publicly declare my, my commitment to Christ and to join him in his, in his death and be raised with him in, in new life. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the, through the glory of the Father, we, we too may live a new life. All right, breeze up next. So my name is Brianna Logan. I grew up in a, in a home where faith and relationship with the Lord was important. I was taught the disciplines of prayer and church attendance. I knew that Jesus loved people. I knew that Jesus forgave sin. What I didn't know was the state of my own sinfulness. For most of my life, I was separated from God because of my sin, and no prayer or church service attendance could restore that relationship. I grew up being known as a good kid. I would try hard to follow the rules and always wanted to please others. Aside from church and my prayers, Jesus didn't play much of a role in my daily life. As I entered college, I started to adapt to my surroundings. I was living a sinful lifestyle. I wasn't attending church and prayed less frequently. I would try to do the things like go to Bible study or read a devotional to feel better about myself. But deep down inside, I think I knew I was living in sin and rejecting God. This style of living continued until I graduated from college. A lot of things I had placed my identity in were no longer there. 
and I was uncertain of what my future held. I was still praying and, and had started to read the scriptures. I wanted to find a church that I could start attending regularly. In the process of finding a church, I heard the gospel, and for the first time in my life, I understood it. I understood that my sin is the reason Christ had to die. That if I did not humble myself before him, repent, and turn from my sin, then I would be eternally separated from God. It is because God became flesh in the form of Christ, lived a sinless life, then willingly went to the cross to die that I could be seen as righteous in the eyes of the Father. God in his grace and mercy opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel. He brought me to a faithful church with a loving community. My identity is now found in him. My life is no longer my own. I am a new creation in Christ, and my life has been changed forever. Although I was baptized as a baby, I wanted this to be a decision that I made when I truly understood what Christ did for me, and I understood what it meant to be baptized. I want to be baptized today as a public declaration of me committing myself to Christ and a step in obedience towards him. All right. My name is Zach Lenz. I was raised in a household that knew God and honored him. Even though I attended church regularly, I did, not, I did not understand who God was or what his son had done for me. I went through all the motions that a normal kid in my church would do, youth group, confirmation, sermon notes, etc., but I did not get a whole lot out of it. When I, went up, when I went off to college and was finally on my own, I no longer had my parents pushing me to attend church or be in fellowship. I wanted to live life for myself and have, all the, and have all the control. I thought I knew what was best for my life. Looking back, I can see how this affected the way I behave, the way I talked, and the people I chose to associate myself with. Thankfully, I had one roommate and one friend who continually invited me to the Salt Company at the University of Northern Iowa. From there, I was able to be surrounded by Christians and be in fellowship with them. I was able to learn about the Lord, his son Jesus Christ, and what he did for me on the cross. I had a great desire to have a relationship with Christ. I now understood the weight of my sin and the work Jesus did for me on the cross so that I could be forgiven. I was made righteous in God's eyes through the blood of Christ, and I knew I wanted to give my life to him and no longer live my life for myself. Although I always thought it was a bad thing that I did not have a, a quote, aha moment in my life where I gave my life to Christ, I can see how Christ has softened my heart and worked over time and still continues to do. It is, it is all in his timing. I'm excited to continue growing in Christ and living my life to glorify him. Today I want to be baptized because baptism is a step of obedience to Christ and to publicly declare my faith in him. Let's give these guys a round of applause.